0: I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are Conversations About the News. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or
1: just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These Conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington.
0: Today we have with us Dan Kennedy, an associate professor at Northeastern University School of Journalism specializing in digital media and alternative business models for news. Dan began his career as a reporter for nine years at the Daily Times Chronicle in Woburn, Massachusetts. He was also a media columnist for The Guardian and The Boston Phoenix, which earned him the 2001 National Press Club Author Rouse Award for Press Criticism. He's a regular panelist on Beat the Press, a weekly roundtable program on media issues, and he manages his highly successful blog, Media Nation, a source of news and commentary. Highly relevant to the topic of our podcast, Dan wrote a book in 2013 titled The Wired City, Reimagining Journalism and Civic Life in the Post-Newspaper Age. I met Dan in the spring of 2016 while we were both fellows at the Harvard Kennedy School's Joan Shorenstein Center for Media Politics and Public Policy. While there, I was fascinated by his research for his now well-known published paper, The Bezos Effect, which tracks the reinvention of the Washington Post as a national digital news organization under the ownership of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. His paper will be part of a book he's writing with the working title of The Return of the Moguls to be published in 2017 by 4 And Dan, uh, this is one part your
2: paper is one part of this book. Who else will you be talking about in the book? Well, I'm largely looking at three newspapers, the Washington Post being among them, and and certainly the most prominent example of a newspaper that is reinventing itself under the guidance of a wealthy owner. Uh, But the other two are the Boston Globe under John Henry, who. Uh, actually uh, announced that he would acquire the Globe three days before Jeff Bezos announced that he would be buying the Washington Post. Uh, John Henry, of course, is a very wealthy financier and uh, the principal owner of the Red Sox. Uh, So we take a great deal of interest in him here in Boston. And the third is uh, actually the Orange County Register out in California, uh, which um, people, for people who have short memories, uh, three or four years ago, they had acquired a wealthy young owner named Aaron Kushner, who uh, had previously tried to buy the Globe, I should say, uh, and he's still based in Boston. Uh, but he uh, and a group came in, bought the register, and tried to reinvent it along the lines of getting back to print. And not worrying so much about the Internet. Uh, It was an interesting idea. Um, I I think it's safe to say that he probably expanded much too rapidly and spent way too much money because uh, it was an interesting idea that came to a pretty early conclusion. And uh, the register is now owned by another company.
0: Marty Barron, the uh, editor of The Post, uh, earlier this summer for our podcast, uh, had nothing but good things to say about his editorial autonomy and the Washington Post's financial security under Bezos.
2: is that the case? Uh, did you find that uh, in your study? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the the one thing that we didn't really know about Jeff Bezos back when I was writing my paper was how would he respond uh, when um, when there was a lot of incoming flack? Would he be worried about the effect of that flack on his, uh, his, his larger venture with Amazon, for instance. And it's funny, uh, not long after my paper was published, Donald Trump came after Bezos and the Post in a big way, and he, uh, he threatened to uh, take away tax advantages that he thinks uh, Amazon has if he becomes president. Uh, he was uh, denouncing uh, Jeff Bezos in the way that only Donald Trump can denounce people. And uh, I think that on top of everything else, uh, Bezos proved that he really has a backbone. And in that respect, is kind of a worthy successor to the Graham family, which, which certainly had to deal with those issues over the years. Most, most famously, Catherine Graham with the Nixon administration. So talk a
0: little bit about uh, what do you think are the most significant things uh, that they've done, uh, that Marty Baron has done, uh, and which obviously Bezos has signed off
2: on? Well, you know, what what Marty Baron has done, by the way, I should point out, and I think people know this because of the movie Spotlight, uh, but Marty was the editor of The Globe for many years before going to The Post a few years ago. Uh, under Graham family ownership, I should say, and uh, Bezos had the, uh, the the wit to keep him on. Um, and this is a little bit of a diversion, but I should also say that uh, the chief technology officer at the Post, Shailesh Prakash, who's kind of a legend and every bit as important to the future of the Post as Marty Baron is, was also a Graham family holdover. So I think, Actually, one of the lessons of the Bezos' ownership of the post is just because you're moving into a business that's having problems and challenges, it doesn't mean that you sweep everybody out when you come in. Uh, Bezos showed that he was able to recognize talent and and, and keep it instead of turning everybody over and, and trying to do everything new. Um, you know, Marty Baron has brilliantly... Uh, played with the, the, the extra resources that Jeff Bezos has given him. Uh, probably the most important thing that Bezos has done and that Barron has implemented is that for many years, the Washington Post couldn't decide whether it was a national paper or a regional paper. And in fact, in uh, the, the last few years of Graham family ownership, they had really gone in the direction of a regional paper. In fact, there wasn't that much difference between the Washington Post and the Boston Globe, except that the Post was bigger and that it covered the nation's capital, which automatically gave it some national, um, some national interest. Bezos came in and said, you know what, we're going to be a national paper. And we're gonna be a national digital paper. So the size of the editorial staff was expanded from about 560 to about 700. Uh, a number of engineers were added to the newsroom to improve the nature of the digital journalism they do. And um, the the journalism under the Post, under Marty Barron has just been superb. Uh, this year, their political coverage, I think, has been absolutely outstanding. Uh, but they've also done some serious enterprise reporting that has put them back on the map as well. I should say the Post never stopped being an outstanding paper, but they really seem to be firing on on all pistons right now. Um, the, the big the big accomplishment of 2016 is that they won the Pulitzer Prize for a massive database they put together of police-involved shootings of civilians, uh, which allowed them to do a number of absolutely fascinating stories that were steeped in the data that they had put together. Now, the national edition of The Post is a digital edition. And this is where I think that Bezos and locally at The Post, Shailesh prakash have done some absolutely fascinating things they have several flavors of digital there's a uh a a full service digital edition which is somewhat expensive although it's not as expensive as a digital edition to the new york times would be but there's also a less expensive beautifully designed uh, app for mobile and for tablets called the National Digital Edition. And uh, what they've done with this, and it's just striking to look at, but they've eliminated all the local news. And uh, the cost of it is fairly low. But what they're hoping is, by eliminating all the local news, people in the D.C. area aren't going to be interested in it. So the, it will only appeal to a national audience. And it's been integrated in Amazon in some fascinating ways. It's part of Amazon Prime. Uh, after six months, you have to pay a little something. But it's free with Amazon Prime, at least is first. at first. It comes pre-installed. Uh, on the Amazon Kindle fire. Um, So, you know, in this respect, Bezos has done a few things that, although they're absolutely fascinating, at the same time, it's not easy to see how other newspapers could replicate this. He can become national because he's in Washington. He can also leverage it with Amazon in some pretty interesting ways, and that's not something that anybody else can do. So the accomplishments are great, but not easily replicable, I don't imagine. You know, uh, to, just to underline, and it, it
0: really underlined it for me, I, I did an op-ed uh, for The Post uh, that was in Sunday's paper. And I was down at the Post the other day, and in this new building that they have that's so remarkable. And right in the middle of it, uh, it's uh, the second floor. There's kind of a balcony that looks off, and you can see the first floor. There's this enormous electronic board right in the middle there where you can tell how many people are looking at the Post right now uh, online, uh, you can also over to the right, there is a list of the stories and whether people are looking at them on Facebook or whether they're looking at them in someplace else. All of this data uh, is available right there and you, you can watch it change. But more, more significant to me is the way the culture uh, of the post has changed. I mean, they are doing some remarkable uh reporting now, but just for example, uh so I I did this this op-ed piece. Uh it showed up on their website uh I think it was Wednesday or Thursday. And I thought, well, I thought it was going to be in the Sunday paper. And I called uh, one of the editors and she said, oh, no, no, don't worry. It's it's in the Sunday paper. But said we liked it and we wanted to get it out as soon as we can. I can't ever remember, uh, you know, when when the Post would put something online before it got into the real paper. And I was thinking back to CBS News how we used to never – ever break a scoop until the evening news we'd hold it to the evening news because that's where we thought our viewers were now we get it onto our website and onto cbsn the minute we get it but the post like cbs and the other mainstream folk it does go through the same editing process uh so many of these websites now i talked to uh, a person the other day that worked for a fairly mid-sized newspaper in the south they, they've they let all their editors go. Their job is to put it online and then come back to the office. That's and right. nobody reads it except the reporter who wrote it uh, before it goes on. That is not the case at the Post. But the other part that uh, underlined to me how different it is, once I got the, the written piece done – then I get a call from another editor and said, we'd like to do a video package to go with it. Oh, so okay. I go down, there <laughs> and, yep. you know, I mean, they are no longer. And I think uh, uh, I think uh, Marty Barron would tell you they're no longer a newspaper. They're a media company. No, and that's the, right. There's two different things here.
2: That's right. Uh, and and by the way, they do a tremendous amount of journalism that never even appears in print. Uh, I, I wrote an op-ed for them last summer, and it was strictly for one of their blogs. It was, it was not for the print edition at all. Um, they are a full-service news organization. There's TV studios all over the place. And, uh, you know, one might note that there is this thing called Amazon TV out there. So... Uh, I I would not be the least bit surprised if Jeff Bezos is thinking about leveraging Washington Post journalism for uh, Amazon TV somewhere down the line. Let's bring
1: in uh, Andrew Schwartz. Andrew? Thank you, Bob. And, And, Dan, thanks for being on the show. Along the lines of uh, what you all were just talking about, you know, is the future of newspapers one in which they're beholden to tech billionaires like Bezos or digital media companies like Facebook and Snapchat? And I ask this with thinking of papers like in New Orleans, the New Orleans Times-Picayune. I mean, they call the Times-Picayune the sometimes-Picayune these days.
2: Right. Well, you know, the newspapers have always been beholden to somebody. And certainly, what we saw during the 70s, 80s, 90s, a little into the 2000s was newspaper after newspaper fell into the hands of um, publicly traded corporations that were insisting on profit margins of 20, 30, 40 percent. So you started seeing newsrooms being cut even when newspapers were still profitable. Uh, So at this point, yes, it is true that. Um, that the interest of wealthy individuals who can put some resources into the papers is something that is very much to be desired given the state of the newspaper business. Uh, But I think what we all hope is that somebody figures out a way to break even and maybe make a little bit of a profit again so that it doesn't just become the uh, plaything of a, uh, of a wealthy person. And I, I have to say that I, I think that the Washington Post under Jeff Bezos and the Boston Globe under John Henry have not been run as, as the playthings of wealthy individuals. Um, Bezos has put a lot of money into the Post, but the size of the newsroom is still considerably less than it was at the peak of the Graham era, Uh, he's trying to build a business. And the Boston Globe under John Henry has done some cutting because uh, John Henry has said he's not interested in making money, but he doesn't want
1: to lose money either. He he wants it to be a sustainable business. And are the media companies like The Post and The Globe Are they somewhat beholden to Facebook these days with instant article and the distribution that Facebook has over content?
2: Facebook is uh, the biggest player in media these days, and nobody can really try to move forward without thinking about a Facebook strategy. Um, Shailesh Prakash, the chief technology officer at The Post, uh, talks about... Uh, a barbell strategy, something that he says that he and Jeff Bezos have personally discussed, where on one side of the barbell you have your own products, your website, your apps. Uh, I I guess there's a print edition in there somewhere. I don't know. Uh, I guess they still do that. And then on the other side is uh, the distributed platforms that they rely upon. Uh, Facebook, Apple News, Google, But it's primarily Facebook. Uh, Facebook is absolutely enormous. The Washington Post is the largest digital newspaper in the country right now. They receive something like, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I think it's um, 80 million unique visitors a month. Uh, Facebook gets nearly 2 billion unique visitors a month. Uh, People spend an average of 50 minutes a day on Facebook. Uh, They might give a news site a few minutes. So Facebook is just enormously important. Plus, it's a lot harder to block ads on Facebook. So news organizations are saying, we're terrified of all, the, all of our users who are starting to use ad blockers, uh, which is going to cost us a lot of money. Uh, we're going to try to form a partnership with Facebook where at least we can share a little of that advertising revenue. Explain to us what a unique visitor is. Um, a unique visitor, uh, they, they actually have different definitions, but the one that's used the most often is a unique visitor is um, a computer, or I should say an Internet protocol address that checks in uh, on a website at least once a month. So if you're uh, accessing a news site with your phone, with an iPad and with your computer, you are three unique visitors. Um, but it, it's a lousy, lousy measure. Uh, for a long time, it was the best measure that we had, but I think that we're starting to move toward better ways of measuring. Uh, real user engagement and, and uh, the sorts of measures that you really want to know. In fact, the Washington Post is developing a lot of their own metrics uh, that are much more useful than unique visitors. And, and explain to me
0: also, so the Post has a Facebook strategy. What does that mean and
2: why is that important? Well um, the, the post is pursuing Fa- the post is using Facebook in a number of different ways. Uh, first of all, they simply have people reading their content on Facebook and if you go to the Facebook on, the Facebook on your mobile device um post content appears as what's known as instant articles which mean that you don't have to wait they load instantly and there's some sharing of um there's some sharing of ad revenue with facebook when they do that Uh, but the post is also trying to use facebook to drive people to their own website drive people to their digital products such as the uh, the different apps and eventually Uh, become a paying digital subscriber to the Washington Post. As we've seen the digital ad market collapse in recent years, um, every newspaper in the country is thinking more and more about how to uh, get their digital readers to become paying customers. Uh, This is the Boston Globe's main goal, for instance. Uh, What the Post talks about, and this is not unique to the Post, but they talk about a customer engagement funnel uh, where at the top of the funnel, which is its widest point, are casual um, visitors, And you try to push people down into the funnel where they become more and more engaged with your journalism so that by the time they come out of the funnel, and I guess, do they fall into the jar? I don't know. Um, By the time they come out of the funnel, they're committed Washington Post readers and they are paying for a digital subscription. Are paper newspapers
0: going the way of the buggy whip?
2: Well, you know, that's a great question, and as somebody who thinks and writes about this stuff, I will tell you that I was dead wrong, and I think a lot of other people were dead wrong. Ten years ago, I would have told you that print would be gone by now, Um, and it's very much with us, and even though uh, print continues to shrink, it's still where 75% of a typical newspaper's revenue comes from even the Washington Post. Uh, So the big challenge that every newspaper has had is to try to figure out how to manage this transition to digital and to get some money out of digital, which has proven to be very difficult, while at the same time maintaining the print edition because that's still where the money is. I don't think print's going away. Um, of course, if you'd listened to me 10 years ago, I would have been wrong. I may be wrong now. Uh, I think that what we are eventually going to see, and maybe in the not-too-distant future, is that we're only going to see Sunday papers. Um, and that's where the money really is. Uh, if if 75% of a newspaper's revenue is from print, uh, 60 or 70% of their print revenue is from the Sunday paper. So I think that what they're going to be increasingly pushing toward is maybe a big weekend paper that would come out on Saturday morning. And the rest of the week, they'll just offer digital.
1: Andrew? Dan, you mentioned that newspapers... Um, need to become full on media companies. And I think that that's probably true for television as well. TV networks like CBS now have a huge um, online component where they're not only streaming 24-7 as it is with CBS, but they're writing a lot of print articles digitally. Do newspapers or media companies or television, do they need to become more than that do they need to become technology companies now to survive well you know when you talk to people at the Washington
2: Post they they talk very much about the post becoming a technology company and they will tell you that it's very important to them to control the technology that they need to uh, put out the paper so for instance uh, they've developed their own technology for metrics. Uh, they've developed their own technology to test out headlines and see, uh, test out headlines and story treatments and see which ones play best with the digital audience. They've developed their own content management system and. Every newspaper hates their content management system. So the Post has developed their own. But at the same time, when you say every news organization needs to become a technology company, well, who can afford to do that? The Washington Post can. The New York Times can. Uh, the, the the major television networks can. Um Most smaller news organizations can't afford to do that. So I think there's a tremendous um, opportunity for companies that are able to develop their own technology to license this technology to smaller news organizations uh, that can't possibly afford to engage in this kind of development. Uh, I know that the Washington Post is doing that. I don't think the New York Times is doing it. Uh, They should take a look at it because
1: uh, as cool as Washington Post technology
2: is, the New York Times is pretty cool too.
1: So you're making an argument that there is a future for hyperlocal news somehow leveraging the expertise that – major media companies, newspapers, or what we once knew as newspapers are becoming?
2: Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of public domain and off-the-shelf technology that I think can work for truly hyper-local uh, uh, news organizations. Uh, I mean, frankly, that was the focus of my last book, The Wired City, which was really uh, based on new forms of local and regional journalism. And uh, n- those projects, many of which were nonprofit, uh, were not really doing anything fancy with technology. They were using um, off-the-shelf products and doing quite well with it. Let me uh, ask
0: you, uh, what are the lessons that the newspapers that don't have a billionaire, what can they take away and use uh, from from the experiences uh, that the Washington Post uh, and people like the Post have done?
2: Well, you know, that's that's a great question. And I have to say, if a newspaper finds itself in a position where it has to keep cutting to stay ahead of the revenue decline... I don't know that there's an awful lot that they can take away from the the lessons of The Washington Post. But if they're doing a little bit better than that, uh, I think some of the lessons that they can learn are uh, probably the biggest is that quality matters. Quality really, really matters. Um, We're talking about The Washington Post, but if you picked up The Boston Globe this past Sunday. Uh, and, and a much smaller paper than The Post, obviously, a much smaller paper than The Globe used to be. Two major enterprise pieces uh, on the front page of The Globe, really holding um, government and, uh, and, and large institutions to account. Um, this, is, this is absolutely crucial. If news organizations cease to be relevant to the mission of holding government and large institutions accountable, uh, they're not going to go anywhere. You know, I think one of the other lessons is that whether you can develop your own technology or not, technology really matters. And uh, the user experience provided by technology really matters. There are so many really awful user experiences out there when it comes to accessing news digitally. Um, that uh, and and it just drives people away at this point. And in 2016, uh, a lot of your best and most engaged customers want to consume news digitally. And if you're not uh, really uh, doing the right thing by them, um, they're 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 you're going to be driving them away.
0: I want to go back to what you were talking about about quality and. Uh When I asked Marty Baron about this, uh, and I was talking about content, and he said, I don't even like to call it content. No,
2: Marty doesn't like the word content. He said, I like
0: to call it journalism. Uh, But it made me think of what uh, Leslie Moonves, who's uh, our big boss at CBS, uh, said to me one time. He said, look. It's about what's on the screen. He said, if it's no good on the big screen, it won't be any better on the small screen and vice versa. And he, he does call it content. But again, it goes back to that. And I think I think that is the number one thing here is quality and reliability. If people read it and they can assume that you've gone to some trouble to check it out and, and that it's true. And if it's, if it's uh, relevant to their to their life, uh, then that, to me, is how you build your reputation.
2: I think you're absolutely right. And uh, I think a lot of people have looked at the news consumption habits of of millennials and taken away the wrong lesson from what they see. Uh, What they see is that young people are going to 12, 15, 30 news sources on a regular basis. And uh, and and the assumption is they don't care about quality. They're just they're just going out there and grabbing whatever there is to get. Um, as, as somebody who teaches people in this age group, I don't find that's the case at all. They're very conscious of quality, and you know they, they their their idea of what's a quality news organization uh, may not be the same as yours or mine. But a lot of times when you look at what they're
1: they're looking at, you say. They're right.
2: And I should add this to my media diet. So just because they're well, it's, skipping it's the a-
1: other way around, they're going to 12 and 15 sources because they're going to the best that each one of those 12 and 15 news sources has to offer.
2: That's right. Well, I'm not sure that they're necessarily going out and proactively visiting those sites. It's a lot of times it's coming in uh, on their Twitter feed or on their Facebook feed. But sure. that doesn't mean that they're not taking note of where that news is coming from and, and making a note as to what's quality and what isn't. I mean, frankly, I see more people my age sharing uh, garbage from the content farms than I do uh, millennials.
0: You know, I I, I, uh, I felt for a long time when I'd hear... People say that uh, young people uh, don't read newspapers, or, or well, they do. And, and these these stories that well, they get their the main source of their news is John Stewart or now John Oliver. Well, if you don't know what the news is, then you don't get the joke. That's on, right. on John Stewart or, or one of these satire programs. So uh, I, I have always believed that that they read maybe they don't know they're reading a newspaper. But they're they're getting the news probably from a mainstream media source.
2: No, and I think they know where they're getting it from. And I agree with you. I think that, I think that the internet is driving people to John Oliver, and at the same time, John Oliver is driving people back to uh, news organizations to find out a little bit more about what he's talking about. I want to get your take on uh, the current campaign
0: and the coverage of the campaign, and just. Uh, how do you think? Uh, how do you think we're uh, we're doing?
2: You know, I think it's really a mixed bag. Uh, I, I wrote, I write a weekly column on media and politics for uh, wgbhnews.org, and I I wrote a pretty harsh piece a couple of weeks ago. Um, it seemed to me that it seems to me that we've gone through several phases, and there was the early phase in which uh, I think Donald Trump got. Uh, all of this disproportionate coverage, and not very tough. And I think in, in some ways, news organizations thought they could kind of ride the Trump train and drive up their ratings, and there wouldn't be much in the way of a price to pay for it, because they didn't think he was a serious candidate. Then we got to the point in the campaign where it was clear that he was going to be the Republican nominee and he became the Republican nominee. And at that point, I think we saw a couple of months of extremely tough coverage of Trump, uh, one uh, negative story after another, really kind of exposing his record. Uh, and uh, But then we've entered this third phase and I don't know whether we might be coming out of it now or not. I think that we saw some indications of this with the, uh, with, with the coverage of his statements on his birther beliefs last week. But I think this third phase was after the media had finished dissecting Trump's attacks on the Khan family, the Gold Star family, I think there was a sense of exhaustion the media was sick of Trump, and they were going to move on to Hillary Clinton, and I think that we saw several weeks of what I would consider to be disproportionate coverage of what Bernie Sanders called our "damn emails" and uh, and 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 all these other issues. That really, it, it's not that there was no serious problem with some of. Hillary Clinton's record, but it just struck me as so minor compared to uh, the, the record that Donald Trump has compiled over the years. And um, I think that there was a real problem with some of that coverage. Uh, I think that the media lost interest in Trump at exactly the wrong time in the
1: campaign. Andrew? Yeah, Dan, you, you spoke before about optimizing journalism and creating a great user experience. Tell us about what optimizing journalism with artificial intelligence is all about.
2: Oh, I think you may be talking above my pay grade here. Um, you know, probably the best example of artificial n- intelligence and news would be uh, what rises to the top of your Facebook news feed. And that's not sure. something I'm particularly happy about. I think that's something we all ought to be quite wary of. Uh, there have been times when Facebook has adjusted its algorithm in a way that favors serious news, such as... Um, A couple of years ago, they did a tweak that punished um, Upworthy uh, and sites like it uh, that they found that users were clicking on a link to Upworthy and coming back very quickly, which suggested to Facebook that people were not liking what they found once they went to Upworthy. So, uh, Upworthy was hurt in the algorithm as Facebook tried to make for a better user experience. Uh, But just a couple of months ago, Facebook adjusted its algorithm uh, so that you were going to see more stuff from your friends and less news. And of course, Facebook has said, Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Facebook, has said over and over, we're not a news company, we're not a media company. Well that offers you some insight into the way he thinks, but Facebook is in fact the most important news company in the world at this point, whether they want to be in that business or not. So that's an example of artificial intelligence being applied to the news in a way that I think we ought to be very wary of. Now, I suspect, Andrew, that you were getting at something different, but that's my instant answer to your question.
1: No, that answers it well. And and I think that, you know, really, just like with Facebook, newspapers are looking at what you call the user experience. They're trying to come up with the ultimate user experience to get the readers to pick up Write what they want the minute they click on. And do you do you see evidence of that across the spectrum?
2: You know, I I, I do, but I think that um, I think that good news organizations are very conscious of the need to provide their audience with uh, what they want and what they need. And they talk about this a lot at the Washington Post that they could certainly do a much more tailored. A news report based on your preferences and interests, which you record every time you you visit them online, and they have, at the at most, they've dipped their toe in the water on this because they say no, we we want to expose you to a range of news uh, that we think you need to know something about in order to be a a well-informed and engaged citizen. So I'm very... You know, 10, 20 years ago, we used to talk about what's coming is the daily me. And news reports were going to be completely tailored to your interests. So if you were interested in... um, baseball, you would see nothing but baseball, and you wouldn't get any news about the war in Syria. Uh, thank God that didn't really catch on. It seems to me that people are still interested in knowing about a lot of things, Um I think that the problem that arose instead of the Daily Me is that people want to learn about a lot of different topics within a community of people who think like them. That's a different problem, and I think it's a big one, as we've seen the media fragment into different ideological niches. Uh, That's, frankly, why I think it's so important that general interest newspapers like The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, and general interest newscasts like the three major uh, networks uh, continue to reach a large audience because even though they may be accused of having their biases, and, and they may be accused. They're accused all the time. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that they're at least dedicated to the proposition of giving a fair, neutral, tough-minded report on a wide range of, of topics.
0: You know, that brings me <clears throat> really to, I think, our probably our final area here. The thing that I find so different this time around, and, and there's always been in as long as I've been a reporter, whispering campaigns and all that sort of thing. But now we find these websites, blogs dedicated to putting out information that by design is just dead wrong. How do we deal with that and how, how is that impacting on this whole communications landscape right now?
2: I see. You know, I'm not sure I entirely know what you're referring to because I do see sites that put a lot of stuff out there and they don't care if it's right or wrong, but they think there might be a kernel of truth to it, so they're just throwing it out there. And and that's something we could talk about, but you seem to be referring to something different. Could well, you? Maybe,
0: maybe I've misstated it, but we have these blogs uh, now. We have these websites uh, that... It's almost no bridge is too far and no tail is too tall, and yet they put it out for verified truth. I mean, a guy I went to high school the other day sent me an email and said he had just gotten information. He said, this has been checked out. It's absolutely true that John Brennan, the head of the CIA, is a Muslim, and he converted to Islam when he was a CIA case officer in Saudi Arabia. There's, There's not a... There's no evidence. It's not a shred of evidence that 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 is true. And in fact, it's dead wrong. But it's being
2: circulated as the truth. It's interesting that that's also circulated as a negative. I mean, there's what's wrong with being a Muslim. Well, exactly. But as you say, there's there's, there's absolutely no evidence for that. You know, I don't know exactly what we do. I think that people are going to believe what they want to believe. And there is more... um, the, the, there's more reinforcement for that than there's ever been before. One, one, of, the, one of the things that we sometimes talk about is ab- about how the Internet has changed the news is that there's been this flattening effect so that um, the New York Times website doesn't necessarily look any different than a rumor site or an extreme right-wing site, or an extreme left-wing site. It's all just kind of media. And um, what I hope is that we place an emphasis on civic literacy and media literacy so that people can understand what's important and what isn't and what's credible and what isn't. But that's uh, a fight that we're always going to have to fight. Uh, The only thing we can really hope is that people are going to really want to know what's the best version of the truth that's out there? I'm not going to say what's the truth because we often are just taking our best shot at it. But who's really trying to get at the truth and tell it to us as straight as they can? All we can do is hope that people want to do that. And it's not always clear that they do. Well, for sure, we live in
0: an age of buyer beware. Absolutely. Depend on more than one source. Absolutely. If you're going to get some sense of oh, yeah. what you come to believe the truth is. Uh, well, Dan Kennedy, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations on your great research. It's, it's very needed. We, we really appreciate what you're doing. For Andrew
1: Schwartz, this is Bob Schieffer. But that's not all, Bob. At the top of this podcast, we gave you just a tease of the great music from my friend Aaron Neville's new record, Apache. Let's hear some more from Aaron Neville. I just know this record's going to win a Grammy.
3: Rather than is it the beginning, the beginning of the end? Should I turn around or keep straight ahead and get up, see what's outside, or just stay in bed? We never know where life will take us. Is it waiting just to break us when we go on faith alone? Sometimes it's hard to believe Gotta keep holding on Gotta keep holding on We can't be weak We must be strong And believe we can't go wrong What you get must be deserved Sometimes life throws a curtain Rolling with the punches Follow all your hunches. We must go to the extra mile and always muster up a smile. And never know where life will take us. Is it waiting just to break us? When we go home, we pay the law. Sometimes it's hard to believe. what's going on? oh, oh, oh what's going on? If you're out there, if you hear me, oh, cause it's been so hard, it's been hard, oh, hard to believe what's going on, what's going on. The horizon was burning in the sky You never know what's coming It's turning on a dime Oh, the world will keep on running It's spinning all the time You gotta keep on moving Or you'll be on the other side And I know where life will take us Is it weak just to break us when you go home, the alone, sometimes it's hard to believe oh, what's going on. Gotta keep moving on. Oh. 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 Oh.
1: If you like this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, visit us at csis.org, and check out the Schieffer College of Communication at schieffercollege.tcu.edu.